Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Welcome to the Diversity in Practice podcast, a part of MoFo Perspectives. My name is Natalie Kernisant, and I am the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Morrison and Forrester. This podcast series is designed to provide a space to discuss a wide variety of issues related to diversity in the law and to introduce you to some of our talented, diverse attorneys, their areas of legal expertise, and the work that they and their MOFO allies do in furtherance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Hello, everyone. My name is Natalie Kernisant, and I'm the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Morrison & Forrester. I wanted to warmly welcome everyone and thank you guys for joining us today, whether your colleagues, clients in the room or virtually joining us. I'm very excited about today's event. It is sponsored by our Disability Affinity Network and our Diversity and Inclusion Group in celebration of the National Disability Employment Awareness Month. So for most of you, you're very familiar with MOFO, and we have always valued the differences among people within our organization while recognizing our similarities. This year, we are proud to begin formally celebrating National Disability Employment Awareness Month by raising awareness and celebrating the unique experiences and many contributions of employees with disabilities. Today, I have the honor of speaking with David Cross, litigation partner and disability network liaison based in our DC office where we are today. We're gonna be discussing his personal experience navigating the legal industry as an attorney with a disability. We will then be joined by Karen Stacy, Diversity Lab CEO and Carlos Terrazas, disability inclusion and global DE&I manager at McDonald's Corporation to discuss how we, at MOFO are partnering with the Diversity Lab in their newest initiative, the Disability Inclusion Advisory Group. With that, please join me in welcoming our first esteemed panelist, David Cross. David, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Natalie. Before we turn to today's conversation, the heart of the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your practice and what led you to MOFO? Sure, so I chair the antitrust litigation practice. I've been practicing for 20 years which is hard to believe. Joined the firm in 2015 with a team of associates and a paralegal. And I would say, you know, what drew us here was really the people, what you were just talking about, that I think the firm has developed a very strong reputation for inclusiveness and collaboration and not having sharp elbows. And we have found that to be the experience since we've been here. It's been a great experience. I know very well that you are the Affinity Network liaison to the firm's disability network and a member of the DSC, a very active and engaged member. So thank you for that. I've had the good fortune to work closely with you on a lot of these issues and know that you self-identify as a person with disability. Can you tell us a little bit about your disability and when you first realized or understood that you were different than your peers? Sure. That's a great question because there's no like aha moment where I think to myself, like I just woke up one day and thought, huh, I'm different. I was born without a left hand, so it's just always been that way. Many folks with disabilities have to adapt because it happens later in life. For me, it's just always been a way of life. And so the difference point has always just been there. Growing up as a kid, kids can be pretty cruel. And so as a child, you're often reminded that you are different, particularly in a qualitative sense, that you're less than, you're inferior, you're broken. When you realize that kids look at you like a disabled kid in Goonies, it's a pretty isolating, pretty marginalizing feeling. 
And that was just something that I was always aware of. I think my parents did a nice job of ingraining in me that it's a difference, but it's not a qualitative difference. Very much taught me that whatever I wanted to do, I could do. Probably taught that to an extreme because I have internalized that in ways that sometimes may not be helpful. But yeah, it's a constant awareness. How do you think living with a disability and navigating the world in your skin has affected your worldview, your perspective? I think it's pros and cons. The pros grow from the challenges and from the life experiences. So to give you an example, lots of things that people would view as just easy, ordinary things for me are a challenge. Perfect example is I remember as a kid, a lot of kids, we all start wearing Velcro shoes because we can't tie our shoes. For me, I was wearing Velcro shoes at an age when that was made fun of, right? Because all the other kids were tying their shoes. And I remember coming home from school one day and thinking, this sucks. I've had enough of this. And I sat down on the back steps with a pair of my dad's shoes because I didn't have shoes to tie and sat there until I figured out a way to tie my shoes. And I figured out how to cross the monkey bars. I figured out how to climb a rope to get through the obstacle course at Boy Scout camp, figured out how to serve a tennis ball. And so solving those challenges that come up in ordinary life, I think for me, that creates, that lended itself to traits about creativity and problem solving, relentlessness. I often hear from clients that they like the creativity and they like the relentlessness so that those can be positive traits but they can present in negative ways too. To the point I was making before, when you're subject to a lot of bullying and ridicule, you learn to develop certain mechanisms for that. For me, it was realizing that you just can't show weakness, you can never show vulnerability. Because once you do, in my mind, you've validated the stereotype that you are qualitatively different, that you're not as capable. And to give you another example, I can recall, I played varsity basketball and my closest friends would say, hey, you're making us look bad in practice. Because if we were going to run sprints, I was going to be the first one to finish. If we were going to run laps, I was going to run until I puked in a trash can. And it was always funny to me. They'd say, well, you make me look bad. You're hyper competitive. And for me, it's not competition, right? It's just about achieving parity. Because the way I would view it is when they would have drills to dribble with both hands, I can't do that. When the coach would say, let's have left-handed and right-handed layups. I'm not making any left-handed layups. And so what I want to do is tell the coach, look, my net value is on par with everyone else, even though the things I can't do. So I'm going to offset the deficiencies by being the one that's who's working the hardest on the court. I'm going to hustle the hardest. I'm going to be the most aggressive on defense. But the challenge with that is that personal dynamic, even with your closest friends can be you're just hyper-competitive. This is self-aggrandizing. And for me, it's, I just want the coach to look at me at the way he looks at you in terms of the value to the team. So the pros and cons that come from it. You speak to this notion of turning adversity into advantage, which is something we focused on a lot in the DNI space, particularly this year. I wonder how specifically has your disability impacted your career? I think it's the same. It's pros and cons. On the pros, again, I think the way I serve clients with the creativity, with the problem solving, with the relentlessness, get a lot of feedback from clients on that, that they like that. Those are positive traits, I think. One of the other things for me is because I feel like such an acute sense of what it feels like to be marginalized or left out, I find myself very empathetic to that. In my prior firm, whenever we had associates who were struggling, who showed a lot of potential I'd always be the one who got the call that was like, can you come in and help this person? And one of the associates who came over with me from my prior firm used to joke that, that I would put myself on the island of misfit toys, which I took as a compliment. She meant it that way. 
everybody struggles in some way. I think everybody probably feels left out at some times. And for me, really having an empathetic sense to that, I find myself gravitating to people who are struggling and trying to help. I think the other the sort of negative repercussions are with respect to opportunities. I can remember a partner telling me that he was not going to include me in a pitch. It was an in-person pitch. He said he was going to talk about my experience and sell me to the client, that I was perfect for it. But he was concerned the client may have an adverse reaction to someone with a disability. They might think, oh, how's a judge or a jury going to react to this? And so let's get hired. They'll get to know your work and the point at which they figure this out. It won't. The irony of it is, in the moment, I remember thinking, oh, there's a logic to that. But there's something insidious about it, too. I think if no one would ever say, we're not going to include a person of color on a pitch because we think our prospective client might be racist, right? We would just not work with that client. But in my mind, one of the challenges that people with disabilities have combating discrimination, whether conscious or unconscious, is I think people justify it more because the reality of being disabled is there's certain things you cannot do, right? I'm never going to juggle. It's not going to happen. And so I think people will justify it because when we think about things like skin color, gender, sexuality, that does not have any impact on your performance, right? That is just pure unmitigated bigotry to judge someone or assess their value based on that. Because I think people look at those with disabilities and say, well, if you're in a wheelchair or you have some other physical disability or perhaps a mental disability, that actually affects your performance. And so people will justify that to say things like my partner said, which is, what if a jury is off-put or distracted by you giving an opening statement with a disability? We need to think about that. And my response is to say, there was a time when people would say the same about people of color, or there shouldn't be a woman giving that argument. And I think we've made a lot of progress in other categories, still more progress to be made, but I think there's a lot we need to do on the disability side. So one of the challenges that you and I have talked about often that as an organization, I think we face when trying to advance DNI, particularly for those living with disability, is the accuracy of our self-identification data. So there's sometimes I think a fear that with self-identification, you lose control of that information when in fact the firm is quite sensitive and explicit about the ways in which we use that information. But I also think that with diversity information in particular, like you were speaking to, there's a social stigma that attaches mm-hmm. to that. And I know that's one of the reasons you wanted to have an event like this and share your story, right? So can you tell us a little bit about why you think it's important to bring awareness to this particular group, but also to share your story? Let me give you context. When I started my career 20 years ago, I remember one of my, I had two friends, both men, both gay. One was not open about it, one was. And I remember we would have discussions among the three of us with the one who was not open about why he wasn't. And his explanation was open with his family, wasn't that. His concern was that 20 years ago, that the industry hadn't fully really embraced it. And that his concern was that it could affect his career opportunities, it could affect getting hired. 20 years later, I think we've made a lot of progress on that particular front. I think people with disabilities are still really concerned about that. I think there continues to be a negative stigma for the reason I talked about, that folks view it as a qualitative difference. So I think folks are worried about self-identifying. I will tell you, I bet if you were to ask the people who interviewed me here when I came in seven years ago, I bet at least some of them would tell you they had no idea that I had any disability until pretty deep in the process. Because I know that in that context, conscious and unconscious, I'm going to hide it. 
because my concern is that people sitting in the room, no matter how good a person they might be, you just can't help that you're human. They're going to be unconscious biases. We learn that we justify unconscious biases in conscious ways, right? We learn that people who may not want to hire someone because they're a female or because they're a person of color will find some sort of, you know, what they will consider a qualitative distinction to say, well, this person wasn't qualified. And that's always my fear, right? Is that someone's going to be off put or distracted? Even now, there are people that I cannot have a conversation with without them pretty frequently staring at my arm. And that's a very marginalizing feeling, right? That people that you respect, people that you consider very sophisticated, people that in the ordinary course you would consider very open-minded and fair and equitable, they're still human. And at some level, you're almost a circus freak. And so the reason I think it's important to talk about it is because I think there are a lot of folks who probably feel the same and aren't comfortable identifying. I will tell you, in 20 years of practice, I can't think of another lawyer with a physical disability that I've ever come across. 20 years of interacting with thousands of lawyers. That is an extraordinary statistical improbability when you consider the number of disabled people in the country. I think there are two things that drive that. One is probably an unconscious bias that makes it harder for folks with disability to get hired, particularly at our level of practice, to get into leadership positions, which I think are important. And the other is I think there are probably a lot of us out there, as I did until basically two years ago, who didn't talk about it, who just wanted to pretend like it didn't exist, wanted to keep our hands in our pockets. And I finally decided a couple of years ago, that's not healthy for me. That's not healthy for others. Spent a lot of time thinking about it and paying psychologists to help analyze that and think about that. But I would, I guess, to give people more comfort that no matter how you are different or how you are diverse, whether it's color, whether it's sexuality, gender, disability, or anything else, everybody struggles in a different way. But everybody should feel open about that and not feel like they have to mask it. So can I dig a little bit deeper on something that you mentioned? You said a few years ago, you decided that you were going to start talking about it. Was there an incident or event in your life that made you make that decision? Because it's a pretty brave thing to do. Yeah, it just dawned on me that I was approaching 20 years of practice. And in all that time, I had never seen anyone else with a disability. But at the same time, I had seen the profession make great strides in other diverse areas. And so it started to feel to me like those of us with disabilities were maybe falling behind in the diversity and inclusion efforts. And again, I don't think that's for insidious reasons. I think there's certain unconscious things that are at play there. The other was, you might remember, I wrote a piece on this. That firm actually let me help me publish. The president of the United States at the time commented on the Special Olympics. And he actually had people in who had won medals. He went from praising them to saying, I tried to watch it, but I couldn't watch it too much. And that is like code in the community of the disability, which is I couldn't watch these people, right? It's like a train wreck watching these people do what they do. There's all the spin that came on it, but it's pretty clear in my mind and many others what he meant. You can't watch this in the same way that you can watch normal people excel at the Olympics. And that for me, was a flashpoint. If that sort of mindset is at the highest levels of leadership, then something is wrong. There needs to be a voice about that. I did want to ask a question for allies out there, folks that want to be more engaged and more actively supportive of raising awareness in this space. Do you have any suggestions or tips or even resources that folks should focus on? 
Yeah, great question. Interestingly enough, there is not a great sort of third-party organization in the legal community for people with disability. There have been a couple attempts at it, but not in the way that we have sort of bar associations for other diverse groups. I think there are various reasons, and I've talked to some of the people that have tried these organizations. I think there are various reasons for that. That's part of the challenge is there's not a great networking organization, and that's one of the things that I would like to see develop. But I do think the organizations that are focused on diversity, like Diversity Lab, obviously, and what Karen is doing, I think those are really important initiatives and folks should get involved as I have. But the other thing I will say is I think everyone can relate to the challenge, at least, even if you don't fully appreciate, right? Like one of my closest friends from law school is black. And I remember him coming back from his first year class saying of a very large class with summer associates, he was the only black person his entire summer class 20 years ago. It was talked about how marginalizing that was. I can never fully appreciate what it's like to be the victim of racism, even implicit, but just like he can't fully appreciate my experience, but we can relate. And so I would say finding advocates who can at least relate to your experience, whether it's people who suffer similar discrimination on race or gender or sexuality, that's where I think we can find advocates and sponsors. Thank you. I did want to take a second, though, to thank you, David. Over the last several years, you have been such a champion for disability awareness at the firm. It is because of you that we are officially celebrating this month. It's because of you that we have a disability affinity network. And it is because of you that we are partnering with Diversity Lab on this new initiative that we're going to turn to in a minute. So I just wanted to thank you on behalf of the firm for being such an advocate for DNI. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the work that you do. I want to welcome Karen Stacy from the Diversity Lab and Carlos from McDonald. Hi, guys. Thank you both for joining us. I'd like to shift the conversation toward how you and your organizations are partnering with folks like MOFO to take the lead in not only raising awareness, but actively fostering a greater sense of inclusion for lawyers with disabilities in the legal industry. First, Karen, I'd like to start with you, if that's all right. Now, MOFO has been a longtime partner with you and a supporter of the work that you do through the Diversity Lab participating in programs like on-ramps and the hackathon that actually led to the creation of the Mansfield certification. So we are longtime friends. Can you tell us a little bit about the lab, its mission, and how it started? I'm happy to, and thanks for having me. So we're a lab, which tells part of the story already. We experiment. And one of the things that I found, Natalie, you and I have known each other a long time, I was in a somewhat similar role to you at MOFO, but at Walgotchall and Cooley and Arnold and Porter over the years. And I headed up talent for about 30 years. I hired 3,746 lawyers. I wasn't counting. <laughs> but one of the things that I noticed over time was that we kept saying we wanted to create more inclusive and equitable environments, but we weren't necessarily willing to do something different than we had done before. And so the idea behind Diversity Lab was we should be experimenting. We should be using behavioral science and data and all of these things that we use in other realms, but not as much here. And so we started with on-ramp fellowship, the idea that women are leaving the profession and we're not giving them a structured path back. So along with MoFo and Sidley and a bunch of other firms, we said, we wanna try this one year fellowship, women who have taken a hiatus from the practice of law and wanna come back so they can expand their skills, that they can expand their networks. And thanks to firms like MoFo, we've now brought back 120 women into the profession that otherwise would tell you that a door was slammed in their face. And so that's really how Diversity Lab started. After OnRamp worked in people's eyes as an experiment, we started hearing, all right, what else you got? 
And that's mm -hmm. how Diversity Lab was born. Excellent. Well, thank you for the work that you do. I do want to turn towards disability inclusion. More specifically, Carlos, I know McDonald's has been a longtime DEI and accessibility advocate. Can you tell us a little bit about what led McDonald's to approach Karen and the Diversity Lab and ultimately create what is now the Disability Inclusion Advisory Group and a little bit about the group? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, thank you all for having me. And David, thank you for sharing your story. I strongly believe there needs to be more of you around the country. So I can't take all the credit for reaching out to Diversity Lab. I have to give credit to our Director of Legal DEI Senior Counsel, Kristen Jones, who was the one who initially reached out to Karen. But at McDonald's, we have a significant amount of outside counsel, and we were looking at that Mansfield certification. And one of our in-house counsels was curious, yeah, we have this woman, GDPQ, et cetera, in our diverse pool, but we don't have any disabled attorneys. Is there a directory for that? Is there other resources that we can find? And obviously it led to Kristen, who was bounced back and forth around, where can I find this? Where can I not? I think she talked to Haben, who is famous for being the first blind Harvard Law student, a blind and deaf Harvard Law student. So then I think at the end of the day, we were introduced to Diversity Lab and I came into McDonald's at that point. So then we were introduced to Karen and we thought it was a great opportunity to just amplify our message. So we started the council and looking forward to just continue to amplify that. So now I know you were in the midst, Karen, of determining when and how to expand the Diversity Lab's directory of diverse partners. So can you tell us a little bit about the directory and how you are working with the Disability Advisory Group to expand? I can. So when Kristen and Carlos and McDonald's called and said, we want to create diverse teams, not only internally, but with our outside counsel, and they had used this, we were in beta test with what we're calling the diverse partners directory. And McDonald's had used the directory already to hire outside counsel and said, it'd be great if we expanded this <laughs> because we were only testing it with four firms. And so, of course, you know, our mantra at Diversity Lab, yes, we would love to do that. And so our first thought was to work with the Mansfield Rule Firms because as MoFo is a perfect example, you all have already shown that you have the desire to do the hard work that you have the desire to stay committed to the hard work. And we knew that putting this diversity directory in place, it wasn't just that that we would need to do. Our goal with the diversity directory was we want to increase the marketplace visibility of underrepresented lawyers, including lawyers with disabilities. But we also want to do what David has done today, which is tell some of these lawyers stories so that they begin to serve as bright lights to other people who might not feel comfortable being or disclosing their disability either internally at their organizations or externally. And so the directory really does serve two purposes. If in-house counsel wants to work with diverse teams, great. Here's a directory of amazing talent that you can easily search and find the type of lawyers that you need and want who practice that type of law and happen to be underrepresented, and in particular, lawyers with disabilities. And then if, and we're talking about this from an internal inclusivity standpoint, what do we need to be doing internally so that these lawyers feel comfortable putting themselves in this directory for both their lawyers and for the external public to see? So we pieced the advisory board together, made up of Kristen and Carlos and you and David. We've got 12 people total, including Haben Gurma, 
And then a couple of other folks from firms, a couple other folks from trade organizations, and then a couple of other folks from in-house counsel. And the idea is to do essentially what David said, create a network of people that are talking about this and thinking about how do we educate, how do we take action, and how do we do so in a way that's impactful for both inside and outside counsel? So Karen, sitting on the advisory board, which both David and I do, I know that we've talked long and hard about best practices and how best to raise awareness and support attorneys with disability. Can you talk, you or Carlos, can either of you highlight some of the best practices that were identified through that project? Okay, I'll name a couple and then you can name a couple. Two things that came up for me that were, I think, somewhat surprising. And this is coming from someone who all day, every day, I'm thinking about inclusivity and equity. And that's not to say I'm perfect as a human, because as David said, I still bring biases and I still bring a lack of awareness and lack of education to the mix sometimes. So I will tell you, this advisory group super educated me. And in particular, Hopin, when we started to say, if we were going to create a culture of inclusivity at our firms and at our legal departments and in the community, what would we do? One of the first things that came up and this is me being vulnerable, is that the directory wasn't accessible digitally. And that was an aha moment for me. And Hoven went on to explain to us, our website wasn't also good from a digital accessibility standpoint. And there was a lot of things we weren't thinking about that we needed to think through different and better. So one was digital accessibility, but the other one that I was thrilled to have this discussion was around language. And looking at the ABA's disability rights pledge and some of those other things, we had seen the language used lawyers with disability or people with disability. But as we began to go back and forth in this advisory group, it was pretty clear that everybody had their own preferences, their own beliefs, and their own values and perspectives on language. And some people preferred disabled individuals, some people preferred individuals with disability, and they all had reasons, good reasons for it. And I think one of the things I learned is, and you'll see this in the list of disability inclusion actions, we use the language in a lot of different ways because we want people talking to each other about these things and educating themselves and hearing different perspectives and not just saying, gosh, this is the set way we talk about people with disabilities. It's not, they're not a monolithic group. And as David said, Visible, invisible disabilities, there's all kinds of perspectives and all kinds of differences that we have to take into consideration when we're thinking about inclusivity. So those are just two of the things that I took in quickly and to heart. What I would just piggyback on that is how we all brought our personal perspectives into why we prefer to be identified either first person or identity first language. And I think it was the ability to just have that safe space of having these conversations that kind of showcase why a group like this was necessary. And really one of our main actions is to create a resource group for disabled people that have that safe space that they can come and have these type of conversations. And I would just also say that ironically at McDonald's, we just launched ours about a year ago. So it's about a, almost a year old. And so it's been very effective. There's been leaders who have joined the group and just learned about all sorts of language from the first person to identity first. So even what we see in McDonald's is we look at disability through three lenses, the permanent, the temporary, and the situational, and how we intersect across all of our other resource groups because 
disability does not discriminate. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, black, white, whatever it is, it will impact you at some point in some way. And it has given that, us that ability to just create more allies and more opportunities for more robust voice. Now, can I have a comment on this? On the point that Karen was making about language in terms of we refer to folks as people with disabilities or disabled people, that was actually a new issue for me to confront during the course of this discussion. It was really interesting to see different perspectives on it. And you see a divide even in the community because some people feel very strongly that the language of disabled people says that defines us, right? That if you call us disabled people, then you're defining someone by their disability. So instead you wanna say people with disabilities because you're putting people first. And the disability is just a trait. I think there are reasonable views on both sides of that. And even my own mindset has morphed on that over time because what I have come to realize in the last couple of years is it is a defining trait. And I think the more that we as people with disabilities or disabled people resist that, I think that my own view is that's unhealthy. And I will say for my own psyche, I always thought people with disabilities was the better language for the longest time because I did not want to be defined by it. And I think that's the stigma in the world seeping into my own mindset. Yeah, to piggyback off that, I was actually surprised by this conversation when we were having it because I do diversity and inclusion work. I had always thought that you would say lawyers with disability, but Haven was really sort of her perspective was really eye-opening for me in the sense that it was a way of empowering the community by taking what we were talking about before, turning adversity into advantage, by taking that label and saying it is a defining characteristic and it's something that I'm going to be proud to talk about and not hide. So again, to Karen's point, and what I find time and again in this type of work is that none of these categories are monolithic groups. Everyone has different experiences within whatever group you're talking about, and there are going to be different opinions and different ways of approaching topics, even within a particular affinity group. And so I think it's important that we learn to have individual conversations and respect people's individual perspectives. And I think that's at the heart of inclusivity, at the heart of the work that we do in this space. Keeping with you, Carlos, if you don't mind, I wanted to shift a little bit. David and I talked a little bit about underreporting in this space. According to the CDC, 26%, and that's one in four adults in the U.S., has some form of a disability. Yet according to the 2020 report on diversity conducted by the National Association of Law Placement, now, less than 1% of attorneys report having a disability. We know that this is due in large part to social stigma. To quote a Bloomberg article about disability inclusion, being an attorney is very competitive, even more so in big law. So no one wants to be seen as having any weakness as a general matter. So what are your thoughts? Carlos, we'll start with you. And then I'd love for David and Karen, you to jump in too. But what are your thoughts on how we might improve the underreporting of attorneys with disabilities so that we might be able to target more resources and support to that community. So I can speak on what we're doing here at McDonald's and I think that's part of the bigger strategy is to really educate our people on what disability is, right? A lot of people don't see the non-apparent disabilities, the mental health disabilities as disabilities. So we're starting from scratch where we're, one, clearly defining it, not by the ADA, because we think the ADA is just like, that's the bottom line. Like we can go above and beyond that. Really defining and putting it into situations, like I said earlier, 
from a permanent, from a temporary, and from a situational. And the way we're showing that is like a permanent disability is someone who uses a wheelchair, like myself, or someone in, in a, you know, that's blind or deaf. A temporary, you break your arm, you have eye surgery, whatever it is, but it's temporary and, and soon that will be removed. A situational is very simple. Is you're in a loud room, you can't hear what the people are saying on stage. Wooden captions just help you have that access. So really defining it that way and having that open dialogue that we just keep talking about of bringing in allies, because then once, once you bring in the allies and have that safe space for them, you can also bring in the disabled people who would want to feel welcome and whatnot. And first and foremost, you probably need to find some sort of leader message who will be open to talk about some way, somehow, how disability intersects them, either through themselves or through a kid or a friend or whatever. And having that leader message is super important for those people to feel comfortable disclosing. Or David, you had other thoughts? Yeah, I can jump in. I think one of the most important things like we've done with other diverse classes is we need more people to be present, particularly in leadership. I think the more folks see that identifying as disabled is not going to be an impediment. That's important. And I think we're a long ways from that. There are just not many of us, particularly at this level of practice. I think that's part of it. But then to Carlos's point, there are also small things that help. There's a famous story about Mr. Rogers where he used to begin each show by talking about his fish. And a little girl who was blind wrote him a letter that said, hey, I don't know if you're ever feeding the fish because I can't see what you're doing and I'm worried about the fish that they're going to starve. And from that day forward, whenever he fed the fish, he would say, I'm feeding the fish. And it's such a, a small sort of in grand scheme, trivial thing, but it's huge for her and everyone out there that she represents. And it's also adjusting the mindset. I had somebody share something with one time that it was someone was trying to go to a movie theater and they were in a wheelchair and they couldn't go to the movie theater because they couldn't get in. And the person conveying the story said the problem was they were in a wheelchair but the right mindset is, no, the problem isn't the wheelchair. The problem is that the building was not accessible. And so I think a lot of it's how we think about people with disabilities, how simple it is to just be much more cognizant of it and how simple solutions can be to make things more accessible and to give people a path where they feel comfortable that path is going to lead where they want it to go. And I think, quite frankly, I think storytelling and you sharing your stories so helpful in that space, removing some of the stigma. David's a very successful partner at the firm, well-respected member of the community and an advocate for DNI. So I think the power of sharing that story and being brave enough to share that story is really impactful. I think it'll go a long way in terms of incenting others to share their stories and self-identify. So I thank you for that. Can I quickly just add to David's point? I think it's important what he said. It reminded me of what we also do and the work that we do with our definition is the social model of disability, where we make sure we're letting people know what that means, which is how the attitudinal and the environmental barriers create the disability, not the person. So it is not my fault that I use a wheelchair. It is rather the building that was engineered to have four steps and won't let me access it fall. So things like that is something that we also amplify to help people see that vision as well.
And I'll chime in on two things that I think interweave both points. So I completely agree. David made the point that part of the battle is to ensure that the leaders are talking about this and that if they're allies, if they're people with disabilities, but they have to be talking about it. It can't just be that we have an expectation that law students are going to talk about it or that this other group is. And that's in particular why with the diverse partners directory, we started with partners because we wanted partners to serve as role models. And we wanted them to say, look, I'm disabled and let me tell you my story. And that goes to what you were saying, Natalie, so that more people are talking about this in a way that it feels like it should be a conversation and it should be something that we're talking about on a more frequent basis. And it is interesting because having been in the legal field for over 30 years, the discussion really did start with women and then it expanded with race. And I do feel like LGBTQ plus has gotten definitely more discussion and more education over the years, but it does feel like people with disabilities is overshadowed in those discussions. And so it's particularly why when we thought about what we wanted to do with the Diverse Partners Directory, we wanted to just start with lawyers with disabilities. And we wanted to start with the Mansfield Law Firms because the other thing that we learned is that the vast majority of law firms didn't know exactly how to define people with disabilities. And for at least that reason and others, they weren't tracking to see, were they hiring lawyers with disabilities and people with disabilities? What was their census? When they did a census of other humans in the organization, they sometimes weren't asking about people with disabilities. So part of this is we want to make sure that people with disabilities get counted, get seen, that they're visible, they have all of the same opportunity to succeed that everyone else does. And that was what's so eye-opening, by the way, about this list that will come out, the disability inclusion actions. And it's something we haven't talked about yet, Natalie, but the law firms that agree to participate in the Diverse Partners Directory will also agree <laughs> to look at these 10 actions that they could be taken and start putting them in place. And David, some of the things that you talked about, right? You said, this sounds so simple, Karen, but it's important. If you're having an event, please have cocktail tables so that I have somewhere to put my drink and still shake someone's hand. And there are things like that that go from a, oh, yes, of course we should do that, to things that maybe we are thinking about. But like Carlos said, the building isn't structured that way. And we need to make changes so that it is equitable and inclusive for everybody. So I'm super excited about this. And I think it's going to do two things. I think it's going to tell some stories that maybe we haven't been able to tell. And it's going to start to bring out some real education and conversation that maybe we haven't had as much as we should. Karen, so you talked a little bit about the best practices, the list of best practices that the advisory group's working on. What's next for the advisory group? We had to redo the app, which was great. And it's been an amazing learning process. We hired someone who not only can develop beautiful apps, but they're incredibly thoughtful about accessibility and what that looks like and what that means for how we build this. And so we've been behind the scenes rebuilding the app. We've been behind the scenes rebuilding the Diversity Lab website. So anybody that thinks they're, they don't have a lot to learn, we all do. The next step after that is we want to do two things. Obviously, we want to put the diverse partners directory out there so that in-house counsel have the ability to find and hire lawyers with disabilities. We want to put the list of disability and inclusion commitments out there, not only for the Mansfield rule firms, but for everyone to benefit from. And then we're going to run a series of webinars 
so that lawyers with disabilities and people with disabilities and allies can talk and tell their stories and share experiences so that everybody can start to hear and understand what we should all have been talking about already. And then Natalie, it's up to you, David, Carlos, and the rest of the advisory committee, what we do next, but that's at least on the first priorities list. That's all very exciting stuff. And I do, I wanna be mindful of time. I wanna make sure that we have time for questions from the audience. So let's turn to the chat questions first, and then I'll turn to the room. Yes, we have a few questions in the chat. What are some strategies to help address and eliminate the stigma around certain disabilities? Want me to go first? Sure. I would like to think that what we're doing here is part of that, having open dialogue about it. And again, as I mentioned before, I had spent the better part of 47 years being as closed off about it as I could be, trying to pretend like it doesn't exist and hope that people just see me as normal. And I think that's unhealthy. And it's taken a long time to get to that realization. And I think having a dialogue feeling more open, feeling like you can be more vulnerable with folks and having everyone sort of normalize disability, for lack of a better way to phrase it, is I think the best step towards that. And then firms like ours working with Karen and Carlos to embrace it and show that there's a path to success, regardless of how abled or disabled you are. I'll just echo with saying that when this resource group is out, I think one of the things we've done here is we've had monthly talk groups every month, different topics, different disabilities, where it just creates that dialogue and that learning to stigmatize something like autism or something like ADHD or death, whatever it is. Do that on a monthly basis to just let people learn about the different disabilities and then have an open dialogue. And trust me, we've never had a silent room where someone says, oh, my friend this and my friend that, or my, my son has autism. There's always someone that comes out and then it just trickles down from there. So really focusing on that open dialogue. I would just add that I think the best thing that we can all do is have these discussions. And if there is a way to create inclusion and equity so that people with disabilities feel comfortable speaking out, that's incredibly important. Because one of the things, so I just met with the Harvard Disabled Students Law Association a week ago. And one of the things that a good number of those students said to me is two things. One, on a lot of firm websites, I didn't see the words disability inclusion, disability, lawyers with disability, people with disability at all. And they thought that was striking that the people are not talking about it and they don't necessarily feel counted when people are talking about inclusion efforts. The second thing they said was, we looked for firms where somebody looked like us. And we thought if someone looked like us at that firm, that maybe the firm, someone had come before us and had helped pave the way. So until we get leaders and until we get associates and partners and everyone in the firm talking about and destigmatizing disabilities, I think that we're going to continue to hit a wall on the subject. Thanks, Karen. I have another question from the chat. What advice would you give to junior lawyers who are afraid to disclose their disabilities? Is there anyone to help guide how to disclose your disabilities to others at the firm, HR perhaps? Yeah, I'll start the answer to that question. So obviously the diversity and inclusion group at Morrison and Forrester has a disability affinity network now. We support disability as a diverse category. And so we are resources. 
at the firm. If you're at the firm, feel free to reach out to me or any member of my team. And we do have members in most offices now in the U.S. So please feel free to reach out to us. I do think HR is another resource. Obviously, any of your HR managers, the HR team is prepared to help with accommodations or with just talking through how to approach being more open about your disability in this environment. So those are two sort of basic resources at the firm. But I would, if I could volunteer David as well. Yeah. The other two things I would say is we do have an affinity group, disability affinity group. You do not have to be disabled or to identify as disabled. There are folks in the group. In fact, I'm the only one in the group who identifies as disabled, as I mentioned before. And it's been a long process for me. And so I would say join the group. If you're here at the firm, don't have to identify and you can work with us and maybe you get to a point where you're comfortable with that. One thing I will say to give great credit to the firm, one of the first things I raised when I first raised this issue a couple of years ago was that I did not see a way for people with disabilities to identify, except in the context of asking for a reasonable accommodation, which a lot of people will not do unless they really critically have to have it because of the stigma. And Natalie and Laren jumped on it immediately, and we have that in the system now, but it's not required, of course. But I would say that's one is you can get involved with the group. And then the other is I'm always happy to connect with anyone confidentially and help in whatever way I can. I'd also say for those at the firm, the Diversity Strategy Committee more broadly, this is part of our conversation, how to raise awareness around disability. And so I think you'll find a lot of champions and allies and folks that are very supportive in that group as well. And we have a DSC member in each of our offices. So that would be another resource, I think. Eric, the the new firm chairman has served on the Diversity Steering Committee as long as almost anyone. So I think there is very strong support for the initiative at the highest levels of the firm. Ariana, any other questions from the chat before I turn over to the, the room? You can turn it over to the room. In the remaining minutes, I don't know if anyone in the room has questions. Oh, everyone's on the spot. <laughs> I was asking if there's a law school recruiting angle here because there's a group that's being excluded perhaps from the market in an irrational way. And the next David Cross could be out there somewhere in law school or the next Carlos or the next David Tatel. Be careful uh, what you wish for, Jim. On the DC circuit, who's a brilliant <laughs> jurist and who's blind. How should we be thinking about that kind of the recruitment angle here? I'd be happy to get thoughts from Karen and Carlos too, but I do think that many of our law school partners have disability affinity groups themselves. And so our team is definitely looking to partner more closely with those groups, particularly as we were turning more of our attention and resources to supporting raising awareness in this space. So I do think that there is an angle for recruiting purposes, at least to build that relationship with those groups on campus and really hear from them what they'd like to see in the recruiting space. So I think that conversation is beginning, but I don't know if others have thoughts. I'll chime in having just had this meeting with the Harvard Law Students, the Harvard Disabled Law Students Association. Having been in recruiting for 30 years, I've heard a lot of on-campus interview horror stories, but (laughs) nothing like the experiences that some of these students had. One of the students that I was talking with is blind and deaf. And um, the person kept asking her, like, what's her accent? And so training our interviewers and helping our interviewers understand differences is a really important part of this. And then another one of the amazing students I talked to is a quadriplegic. And she went for a callback and couldn't get into the building. And she was late to her interview. And you can imagine like already the amount of anxiety you feel interviewing, add to that not being able to access the building to do your interview. And so just thinking about that from a recruiting perspective, person in the room that asked, that would be a really important step to take. I think it might also be a topic that we 
approach with the advisory group moving forward. Yeah. So I want to thank each of you for your time today. This was a really engaging conversation around a very important topic that I hope the industry as a whole starts to pay more attention to. And so thank you, Karen. Thank you, Carlos. And a special thanks to David for sharing your personal story in this space. And for anyone out there that's interested in getting more involved as an ally or in support of diversity and inclusion, whether it's for disability or other groups, please reach out to me or any member of my team. We're always looking for more champions in this space. So thank you very much. Any final closing thoughts from anyone? I want to thank the clients, McDonald's, because... Yeah. The combination of the law firms and the clients working together is what's going to make this industry better. And it's going to push for change in a way that we probably couldn't do on either side by ourselves. Thank you, McDonald's no, and Accenture you. and uh, Intel. <laughs> thank you all. Thank you. You are. Thank you. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot slash podcasts.